don't we stand and begin prayer? You know, your father's a feeling it's going to be something. Our father. Tonight, so I want to welcome you to the St. John Institute of Catholic Culture. Um, our goal here is to provide adult faith formation um, according to the tradition and teachings of the church so that we form good Catholics that can go out into the world and give a reasonable answer for their belief um, and the hope which is in their heart. Um, as you can see, our past topics. Um, we, cover, we cover history, philosophy, liturgy, theology, scripture, you name it. If it has to do with Jesus Christ, we cover it, um, which covers everything. So, um, and we have talks uh, one to two nights a week, uh, sometimes Saturday mornings, most of the time on Tuesday evenings, but we do have a Thursday evening talk coming up and a Saturday evening talk coming up. So there's time slots for everybody. Um, there's an email list in the back if you want to know about upcoming events. You can see Mon. Is, everybody say hi to Mon. Hi, Mon. Okay, um, we, uh, you can put your email list on there, or your email on there, and I put out something about once a week, sometimes twice a week if I think it's worth it, and uh, I won't bombard you with junk email, and usually you can see right on the subject line what it is, so if you're already familiar with the program, you say, oh yeah, I know that's coming up, and it's just a nice reminder, okay? Um, and since we have so many new people and we have a lot of love, why don't we just go ahead and stand up and greet the person next to you. Make sure you don't know them. No, find somebody you don't know and say hello. Since we're out of time, I'm just going to tell you, it's an honor to have Mr. Dave Brown here tonight. Come on, Dave Brown. Just a fascinating, exciting topic for me personally, and also it's uh, very pertinent for our time, so I thought it would be a great topic to discuss, and I just want to really appreciate uh, you coming out and listening to what I have to say. Um, also, I just wanted, before I start my actual lecture for tonight, just wanted to explain um, the direction of the lectures, where they're going. So, as uh, the title says, science and religion at war. So there's there's a popular thesis out there that says that there's a conflict between science and religion among many of the prominent uh, intellectuals and scholars out there. Uh, two that I'd like to mention, uh, Richard Dawkins, he's an atheist and uh, biologist. He wrote uh, The God Delusion, uh, came out in 2006. And I'll just quote um, an observation that he made in the book. It says, when one person suffers from a delusion, it is called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it is called religion. 
scholar Christopher Hitchens, also an atheist, um, author and journalist. By the way, they, these gentlemen are both British. Um, I don't know what it is about the British, but atheists there. But um, I don't have any British. Um, but Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called "God Is Not Great: How Religion Poisons, Poisons Everything." And just want to quote from him. He says, "Religion is violent." Irrational, intolerant, allied to racism, tribalism, bigotry, invested in ignorance, and hostile to free inquiry. So, with such views out there, I wanted to address those views and uh, debunk such views. Uh, these views would be categorized under the so-called warfare thesis of science and religion, that science and religion are in conflict with one another. And instead, I want to argue for a true compatibility between science and religion. So the first lecture, as Sabatino said, it's, this is more of a foundational lecture, explaining some terms, uh, just laying a lot of things out on the table. So we have a lot, a lot to cover tonight. Uh, I hope I can get through it all. Uh, next Tuesday will be uh, historical controversies regarding science and religion. So you have the, Gal the famous Galileo case, uh, Darwin and evolution, the Big Bang Theory. And then the last lecture, we want to end, end up with Pope John Paul II's fetus ad ratio and look at um, what he has to say regarding the compatibility of faith and reason. So I want to begin with a passage from uh, chapter 1 of Genesis. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and the sixth day. So this passage that I just read is very rich, and it's, it's very pertinent to uh, these lectures that I'm giving. For three, I want to make three points about this, this particular passage. One, God is our creator, and as our creator, he's given us everything, and in religion, we give back what we owe to God, namely worship. So that's the first point. The second point, God created the natural world. He created the, the natural world with all its laws, its beauty, its goodness. And science studies the natural world. So science can be an avenue or a path to reach uh, a better understanding of God. Third point, it says man was created in God's image. So that means that we all have an intellect in order to investigate and discover the world. And God's command to us all is to, to subdue and to take dominion over the earth. And that takes ingenuity, it takes science, it takes engineering, it takes all the, the mechanical arts to do that. Okay, um, some introductory remarks now to my introductory 
remarks uh, lecture here. Um, and four points here. I'm, uh, I feel like I'm German in giving you all these points. Uh, the first point, uh, a disclaimer here. Um, I am not a scientist. I, I love and enjoy and study uh, science. And I'm not a theologian, but I love and study theology. So I'm approaching this subject more as a philosopher and as a historian of uh, ideas. Um, so that's the first point. Second point, this subject is so large um, that certainly these three lectures are not going to cover everything that we should cover. Um, so I had to cut out some things, had to uh, summarize a lot of things. So this is more or less a survey of this, this debate. Third, uh, third point, this uh, particular debate of science and religion is within the context of the Judeo-Christian tradition, Western civilization. And I did this for several reasons. Um, for most of us, this is the tradition that we um, come out of. And also, the major debate in science and religion comes out of that context. Um, modern science was born out of Western civilization. And it's in this context that, context that we see um, this debate over uh, the compatibility or conflict of science and religion. Then the last point is I'm going to be looking at the knowledge claims of science and religion. So each uh, science and religion both make claims about reality. And for some, they claim that there seems to be a contradiction of these claims that they make about reality. So that means that we are not going to cover the ethical issues that often arise between science and religion. But since that's such an important topic as well, I just wanted to briefly go through um, sort of uh, the, the ethical issues that often arise in science and religion and, and what we see in the popular imagination and literature uh, regarding this. So if we think back to the Middle Ages, you have wizards and, and witches who sold their souls to the devil in order to obtain uh, dominion over or mastery over nature and, and obtain some sort of secret knowledge. And so obviously, in, in that case, it's a science that has crossed a boundary there that it should not. We also see uh, in Goethe's Faust, same thing there. Dr. Faust sold his soul to Lucifer in order to obtain um, even more knowledge than what he had. We see in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where uh, the, sort of the concept of the, the mad scientist that cross, crosses the boundaries and creates a monster that, that uh, turns on its creator. And then also we see in uh, Huxley's Brave New World where government and science team up to create this uh, frightful new world. And then uh, you have some dystopian uh, films, dystopian meaning the, the opposite of a, a utopia. So uh, Metropolis um, tells the story of, of robots doing all the work and humans um, living in luxury. But what happens, there again, that the, the machines turn on its creator, uh, the, the, the men that created uh, these robots to do all the work, and they uh, start a revolution and, and turn over um, or, or capture the city. Same thing in Matrix, um, where um, uh, a 
false reality, a false world is created um, through artificial intelligence. So these are just some, some points regarding how science can cross a boundary, and we see that in, in these examples of literature. So science can be used for both good and evil, and religion has a role to play there. Uh, because science should have boundaries it, because it should be based on fixed realities, on the nature of, of humanity, on, on the nature of our destiny, on the nature of the universe. Uh, now, if you go to your outline here, now we're starting on our outline. So, first point, the science and religion are... The, uh, some of the uh, most powerful and influential forces in um, humanity's history. And it's certainly, it's certainly not going away anytime soon. Uh, this, this, these controversies that we see um, between science and religion, it's, it's going to be here for um, many years to come. And we also see um, it in a vast array of areas. So. And particularly in the 20th century, and even more particularly in the last 50 years, we've seen huge advances in science. Uh, some say that we're living in the golden age of astronomy, um, simply because uh, the means are there now to discover ever greater truths about our universe, as well as the discoveries of DNA, of plate tectonics, uh, and, and then on the technical side, you, you have the inventions of uh, computers, internet, space travel. So you have all these things. So uh, the issue of religion's role in, in terms of uh, new advances in science uh, become ever more important. Okay, I want to begin with uh, Pope Benedict XVI's Regensburg Address. Um, George Weigel uh, recently wrote an article that appeared in the Arlington Herald where he said that this <coughs> Regensburg Address was, or has been, the pivotal point in the, the present Holy Father's pontificate. And as some of you may remember, uh, it created a good deal of controversy among the Islamic world. But if you read the actual address, it doesn't, it, it was, the thing he said about Islam was really a side point. He, he was more, more addressing uh, the Western world. And what he uh, had to say was that, that you had to have, you have to have reason uh, together with faith. Because once you separate it, you, uh, you will have problems. And he said, actually, the, the biggest threat to our faith today is what he calls the de-Hellenization of Christianity. And Hellas is the Greek word for uh, Greek or Greece. And so the de-Hellenization of Christianity means taking reason out of uh, its role in our faith. And he goes through three stages of the de-Hellenization of Christianity. First stage being in the Reformation, where the reformers want to go back to the pure form of the faith, the pure biblical form, and get beyond all the, the church fathers, all the, uh, the, the theology, all the philosophy that has accumulated over the centuries, and get back to the original biblical form. So that's the first stage. The second stage uh, the Pope sees is uh, in the 19th and 20th century, 
with liberal theology, wanting here again to go back to the simple man that Jesus was and his simple message and to, to um, get rid of all the, the theology, all the um, you know, thinking of, of Christ as having two natures and one person, getting beyond all those all those complicated uh, um, uh, things that theologians have, have come up with, and to get back to what the simple message of, of Christ was. And then he says the third stage is what we see today, and those who say that the faith was born out of a culture, and that. We need to get beyond this enculturation that the faith um, was born into because there's many cultures out there. And so we need to get rid of, and, and since it was born into, uh, it was a, a blending of, of Jerusalem and Athens of philosophy and, 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 uh, and faith that um, these, these people say we need to get beyond that and, and, and just have a simple faith that can apply to all cultures. And so the Pope says it is true. There are elements that may have cropped into the tradition that um, need not be integrated into all cultures. But he says, and I, I want to quote here, he said, the fundamental decisions made about the relationship between faith and the use of human reason are part of the faith itself. They are developments consonant with the nature of faith itself. So what he's wanting to say is when you're a believer, it's not as if you leave your reason at the door, but you use your reason to delve deeper into the truths of the faith. And so this, this trend to eliminate or to get rid of reason within faith, uh, the Pope sees as a very dangerous trend. And what, it can, what can happen is uh, our faith simply becomes something subjective. Because if you cannot have a dialogue, a rational dialogue with others, then it's simply you believe that, I believe this, and there's no discussion. And so at, at the end of this address, what he encourages everyone to do is to broaden our concept of, of reason. That reason is not simply limited to the empirical world. That reason is, is greater than that. That, that the, uh, reason can be open to all of reality. And, re and as we know, reality is, is more than what we can see. Reality involves um, the spiritual realm. And so he, he encourages us to broaden our concept and application of our reason. Okay, moving on to the third point. I want to begin with uh, Tertullian, who is a church father in the third century. He says, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? Jerusalem, is, and, and this quote means um, Jerusalem being the symbolic city of the Judeo-Christian tradition of, of faith. Because our faith was born out of, out of the holy man, out of Jerusalem. And Athens is the symbolic city of philosophy, of the liberal arts, of, of all the, 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 um, the creative uh, ingenuity of the Greeks. And so what, what he's asking is, what does the faith have to do with this pagan philosophy and reasoning? Can't we just have a simple faith, much like um, what some of the reformers, the liberal theologians, um, have, have argued? And so what I want to do um, first is to define the terms, because you need to define the terms to better understand how they should relate to one another. 
So first, with science, science comes from the Latin scientia, which simply means knowledge. And if you look at uh, science in the generic sense, just generally speaking, it's any systematic knowledge or practice. So any body of knowledge. But if we look at it in a more restricted meaning, it is, it is a system of acquiring knowledge through the, the scientific method, through empirical experimentation, and um, this, this, and the result of that is this organized body of knowledge. Now, religion, on the other hand, is, as it says on your outline, religion is a virtue connected to justice. It's not, it doesn't fall under justice itself because justice says give to each his due. Well, in religion, you can never give your um, what you owe to God because you owe God everything, and you can never pay that back. Uh, so religion is a virtue connected to justice whereby we render to God what we as creatures owe him in all justice. And religion is, um, you can think of it as a generic term, and you can think of it in many different ways. It can be a religious practice. So all the observances and practices that a person does because of their faith um, can be considered, um, or you can define it as a religion. So attending church, your moral life, works of charity, things like that. Theology, you can also describe theology as a religion or as a part of religion. A theology is a rational discourse about God. So it's, it's delving deeper into a study of God and his relationship to his creation. And faith, faith is obviously part of religion as well. It's the act by which we submit our intellect and will to what God has revealed to us. So, faith and reason uh, is a useful pair to, to delve deeper into this discussion, but those who argue that science simply works by reason and faith, or religion simply works by faith, is a bit sloppy because both religion and science use both methods. Uh, so in science, it obviously works by reason, but it also uses faith in, in, in the generic sense of uh, making claims that you can uh, that scientists cannot always um, uh, empirically prove. You know, so no one has seen the inner workings of an atom, or, or no one has experiment or experienced a black hole, or things like that. So something, some claims made in science have to be accepted on faith. There too, um, with religion, uh, not only is it, uh, it works by faith, but obviously you use your reason in order to delve deeper into the truths of the faith. So, We can think of faith and reason being both means to obtain um, a certain knowledge. 
science and religion, as I said, and, uh, uses both, both means to obtain certain knowledge. And so the source that science draws on is the natural world. And the source that religion draws on is revelation, what God has revealed to us. Okay, now moving on to the fifth point on your outline, looking at various models of the interaction between science and religion. So the first model uh, is the, the warfare thesis. So this is the one that I'm really trying to uh, debunk. And what the warfare thesis says is that throughout history we see a conflict between science and religion. And that, in fact, religion has stymied the advance of science. And there's a modern myth that you often hear in popular media and things like that, that you know, in years, years ago, in, uh, in ancient times, people used religion. Uh, they were superstitious, and they used religion to explain the world. But since then, we've developed science and made great advances in science, and we no longer need religion because we can use science to explain the world. And so anytime religion tries to uh, enter that discussion with science, science um, says you have no business in this discussion because uh, we are beyond that, that age. The, the age where um, the ancients used to have to use religion to explain the world. And so that's the first, first model. The second one is the separate realms model, which says that religion and science both have their separate domains and that they should stay in those separate domains. And when they cross over into the other one, um, that is when you have conflict. So when religion tries to make claims on the natural world or if science tries to make claims in terms of revelation, that's when you have conflict. But um, this theory, too, is, is inadequate because religion does, in fact, make claims upon the natural world, and science does make claims about the natural world that does have impact upon uh, the things of faith. So that leaves us with the third model, which, um, as Catholics, we, we hold to, and that's the compatibility thesis which says that truth is one. The truth of nature and the truth of revelation both come from the same source, namely God. And since they come from the same source, there could be no conflict between the two. I just want to quote from uh, the First Vatican Council. It says, Though faith is above reason, there can never be any real discrepancy between faith and reason. Since the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith has bestowed the light of reason on the human mind, God cannot deny himself, nor can truth ever contradict truth. <coughs> now we move on to St. Augustine. Uh, as with so many things, it seems that uh, we go back to Augustine in terms of uh, theology and uh, philosophy because he was such a, a great intellect at a pivotal point in the church's history. And, and it's, it's, it's uh, true in this case as well. St. Augustine was born of a Christian mother and a pagan father. So you see, even, even in his upbringing, um, he had the influence of Christianity and the influence of, 
of pagan uh, thinking. And originally, uh, Augustine um, rejected Christianity. He read the Bible and he thought the Bible was full of contradictions, that it was illogical, and it was only through the instrument of of St. Ambrose that he came to a better knowledge of scriptures and how to use reason and logic to delve deeper into uh, the truths of our faith. And so... Augustine makes, um, or I want to mention four points that Augustine makes. One, talks about the unity of truth. He says, there is not one truth for theology and another one for philosophical knowledge, but that there's one truth. Um, And in, in, in saying this, this means that we cannot simply sweep uh, contradictions under the under the rug when uh, they arise. You have to use reason to resolve any um, any contradictions that you may uncover in in your uh, research of the faith. And so that's the first point. The second point, he um, establishes the doctrine of the two books. You have the book of nature and the book of scripture, and God has written both books. And here again, uh, since you have the same author, there's no conflict between the two books. And that's why you can use the book of nature to interpret the book of scripture. Third point, he says both books require careful interpretation. Obviously with with science, uh, if you look through the history of science, there's been many errors that scientists have made because they did not uh, go through proper steps to, um, in the scientific method, to make a proper interpretation of the natural world, and so too with with scriptural interpretation. Saint Augustine wrote a book called um, the, the Literal Commentary on Genesis, and. He looks at the first two chapters of Genesis, and Genesis, um, in that, in those first two chapters, it addresses questions of astronomy, cosmology, botany, zoology. So it addresses these uh, various um, sciences. And actually, in the Middle Ages, you had what was called um, hexa- hexameral literature, which, from the Latin hex meaning sex, uh, looking at the six days of creation and trying to explain um, what went on in those six days. So Augustine says, you need to have a literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, when we hear literal interpretation, we we often think like like a Protestant uh, of what... Uh, word for word, what the the common uh, 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 meaning of those words are, but what Augustine means by literal interpretation is what the mean, words mean in terms of the author's intention when he wrote them. So the word may mean something, but in the context of the writing, the, the what the author was intending may be something else. And he also says biblical interpretation has to. Um, not only have a literal interpretation, but it also has to be rational, consistent, and in conformity with scientific knowledge. 
And so he says, as a Christian, knowledge of the natural world is necessary as an aid to proper understanding of, of Scripture. And he also um, mentions the doctrine of accommodation. He says that when the author was writing, oftentimes he would write to accommodate the original audience. So, uh, and with a reader reading back into uh, the Bible, sometimes they may fall into a uh, uh, incorrect interpretation because they're not reading it as as the author originally originally intended. And then the last point that Augustine makes is that in religion and science, religion takes primacy because religion addresses the higher truths, and and because of that, uh, science is a handmaid to religion. <coughs> then I just, um, these are famous Latin phrases, credo intellegam, I believe so that I may understand. So you start with faith, but you don't stop there. You delve deeper using your reason to understand the truths of your faith. And then, until until lego ut credam, I understand so that I may, may believe. So, with a proper understanding of the world and reality, you can then move on to the higher truths of our faith. And he says, when reason and faith can work together, they can be mutually corrective of one another. So, he says, you can end up with right reason and right faith. Recta ratio, recta fides. Okay, so moving on to faith now. Faith is a response to the actions and words of God, namely revelation. And so what, is, uh, what does the word revelation mean? It means to uncover or to unveil. A sudden, unexpected disclosure. I'd just like to read uh, to you a definition. Revelation is given by God either to the whole human race or to an entire people, such as Israel or the church, and intended th through them for the whole world. It refers to the revealing action of God directed to humanity as a whole and which finds its literary expression in the Bible. It is God making himself known in Christ to draw mankind to himself. It is not a matter of intellectual communication, but a life-giving process in which God encounters man in history. And so in Revelation, uh, Revelation comes in three forms. You have Revelation in creation, which is simply seeing the, the glory and power of God in, in the created world. And then you have historic revelation, which is the, the supernatural revelation that we find in history. So in, the, in historic revelation, it occurs in a determinate time and place and in a particular linguistic and cultural context. God makes himself present in human history by his word and action in a particular time and place. And then lastly, eschatological revelation is the full manifestation and glory of the revelation found in Christ. So we're on a journey, and uh, we won't fully, um, our God will not fully reveal the truths to us until the end times, until uh, 
and in, in that we will see the full glory of God. Okay, so faith is a response to revelation. It's both a human and divine action, meaning that it begins with the grace of God and it continues um, through the grace of God and it finds its completion in the grace of God, but it involves the human cooperation of man in order to have faith. So, as Augustine says, God who created you will not save you without your free consent. So, if we look down at the, the properties of faith, there's, there's four properties. Uh, the act of faith is supernatural. Faith is a free act. So you see, in this, these first two pair, or this, this first pair, there's a tension there. Faith is supernatural, yet it's a free act. God is working in you, yet you freely choose to believe. And then the, the second pair, faith is obscure, faith is certain. There's also a tension there, because how can something be certain if it's obscure? Faith is obscure because you're dealing with a person, and as with any person, you cannot fully delve the, the, the fullness and mystery of that person. And certainly that is true with God. Uh, you're dealing with uh, deep mysteries, and so faith is obviously obscure in that sense. Yet faith is certain because it comes from the absolute authority of God. God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. And so our certainty in faith does not come from evidence so much as it, as it comes from the authority of the one who has revealed this to us. Okay, now moving on to the birth of science, looking at how science came about and to really ask the question, why did science uh, arise in Western civilization, in, in, a Christ, in Christian Europe, as opposed to some of the other great civilizations in the world, in China or India, or some of the civilizations here in the Americas? And so what I want to do is just go through some, some prerequisites of, of, that need to be there for science to, um, to arise. So first, you need a fairly well-developed society. So you need the opportunity for some to have the leisure to study and research uh, the natural world. So they don't have to worry so much about uh, growing their own food and feeding themselves and sheltering their families. And you also need a simple form of technology so to, in order to build uh, the apparatus to do experiments. You also need a, a system of writing in order to, for scientists to record their findings because science is a cumulative enterprise. If a scientist does not write down his findings, his findings die with him. So you need a system of writing in order to communicate that to future generations. But if we look at the great civilizations, um, all, all these conditions were more or less present in all these civilizations. So it's not, it doesn't seem to be these conditions that were necessary for science to arise, but more of a, a certain philosophy or, or approach to reality. So in the second point, uh, it's essential that a people be interested in the material world, because if, and, and, that, and what goes along with that is that material
material world is good in some sense because if you believe that the world is evil, then why would anyone want to delve deeper into learning more about it? So, you know, there's certain world religions that look at the world as, as being evil. And so, um, take for instance Buddhism, uh, Nirvana, wanting to escape from the, the vicious cycle of life and rebirth. Also, you have various heresies that have arisen um, in Christian Europe, Manichaeanism, Albigensianism, which also looked at the material world as being evil. <clears throat> so that's that's one essential point um, that uh, people would, would need to have. Another one is that matter is orderly, that it works in a rational and consistent way, because if you do experiments and you find that the next day, those laws change, that the world is random, then you can never develop uh, a body of knowledge about the natural world. And here again, Christianity um, not only says that the world is, is good, if we go back to that passage I read in Genesis, God saw that the world was very good. And so that that truth is, is there from the very beginning in the, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And then also with also with, um, we read in John chapter 1, uh, verse 14, the word was made flesh and he lived among us. So in Christ coming into the material world, he sanctified that world uh, even more. And as a Christian, we believe in a rational God, that he works in an orderly way. <clears throat> okay. And then concerning order in nature, you can think of it in two possibilities. Uh, you either would have to have necessary order, so uh, things would just have to necessarily work out in a certain way, or this order that we find in this world is simply one of many possible worlds. And so as a Christian, we believe that God created in freedom, that he could have created a different world, that he created this world. And uh, here again, uh, uh, a science, a science arises in in that approach to to reality because if it was simply necessary order, you could just sit in your room and work it out like a, a mathematical equation. Whereas since this world is one of many possible worlds, you need to do experiments and observation of this world to figure out the laws of this world. Also, you must believe that the, the whole enterprise of science is doable, that it's apprehensible uh, to the human mind. And then lastly, science is a communal endeavor. It, it's, it builds upon many minds over generations. And so throughout all this, you see that Christianity was an environment that um, science could flourish in. So if you think of uh, Islam, um, the Islamic world actually had a, a head start in some sense um, in the realm of science, but it, it stagnated um, in, the, in the high Middle Ages because uh, one, one historian believes that uh, since Islamic theology emphasizes the freedom of Allah as opposed to his rationality, uh, they don't have uh, a good grasp of the order of nature. Because if they overemphasize the freedom of Allah, then um, 
God uh, can will whatever. There's no order to his, to, or rational, there's no rationality to his willing. Whereas in Christianity, we believe that God, there's, a, there's an order and rationale to his, his willing. Why were they so late to, to accept that? In other words, why did it take two or three hundred years to come around to that at the very beginning? It wasn't like that. Well, no, I mean, even today, there's, they still have that belief. Um, I mean, they, out, of, out of convenience and, and um, you know, desire to have Western technologies, yeah. they use those. But if you look at um, the development of science, uh, it, it, the major developments in science have come out of Western civilization. And so they are... Uh, benefactors of, I mean, they, they benefit from those, the fruits of those, those um, sciences in, in the Western world. So uh, Augustine here again argues that the natural world, world reveals the goodness and power of the Creator, and he says thus scientific research or inquiry can even be seen as a religious or devotional activity. And then you can also look to a figure like St. Francis, who uh, shows to us all the sacredness of creation and showing that the created world is good, in fact. And there's a strong, uh, particularly in early, uh, the early Middle Ages, um, after St. Francis, there's a strong Franciscan tradition of scientific research. Because here again, seeing that the, the created world is good, um, and that it's a it's a path to our to the Creator to a better understanding of the Creator. Obviously, um, with that uh, that that belief, Franciscans really took it upon themselves to uh, look in deeper into uh, scientific research. And so, if you look at um, over the history of uh, Western civilization and the development of science. You see that many of the, the greatest scientists in our history were, in fact, very religious uh, individuals. So uh, St. Albert the Great, who is the patron saint of, of science, uh, he was both a scientist and a Dominican friar. Uh, Nicholas Copernicus, he was a, an astronomer and a priest. Uh, Kepler was an astronomer, but uh, before becoming an astronomer, he was wanting to become a Protestant minister. Galileo, uh, despite all the, the troubles um, between the church and, and Galileo, uh, he was a very devout Catholic. Uh, Isaac Newton, uh, not only was he's, he a, a physicist, a mathematician, but he was also a theologian. Greg, Gregor Mendel, uh, he was not only the father of genetics, but he was also an Augustinian priest. And then in our own, or in the 20th century, George Lemaitre, uh, he was an astronomer uh, and, and a Belgian priest. He was the one that developed the Big, the Big Bang Theory. And with that, I just want to end with, since I began with Pope Benedict XVI, I want to end with him, um, his address to uh, Catholic educators when he uh, visited here most recently. And just quoting from his address, he says, God's desire to make himself known and the innate desire of all human beings to know the truth provide the context for human inquiry into the meaning of life. This unique encounter is sustained within our Christian community 
the one who seeks the truth becomes the one who lives by faith. And then again, quoting uh, from his address, he says, God's revelation offers every generation the opportunity to discover the ultimate truth about its own life and the goal of history. So what we see here is, um, is that faith, far from being in conflict, conflict with science, elevates and broadens our understanding of the universe, um, our understanding of our destiny, our origins, and, um, and broadens our understanding of all of reality. And so um, with that, I uh, just wanted to make note of some of the recommended reading. Uh, we'll actually be going over um, Fides Abrazio, but um, uh, all, really all these works are, are great reading. I highly recommend them to you. So I, I thank you for your time. That's it.
that there is no such thing as religion because it can't be empirically proven to her. And no point in her life has she ever been able to see that she can believe in anything beyond the natural world. And then there's a man that she comes into a relationship with who happens to be a man of, of faith. Uh, I think they even call him a priest in it, but he's their father anyway, but he's not any kind of priest I've ever seen. So anyway, um, there's like this alien invasion, but nobody can quite prove why it is. It sounds really bizarre. But it's, oh, it's great though. But at the end, at the end what happens is um, the priest, or there's something that she can't prove that it actually happened through empirical evidence, but she experiences something and thereby she has to say that some things depend on faith. Okay. Um, well, if you What's have your question, DJ? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a great thing. But, um, no, but my question was, I don't know, I thought maybe you'd be familiar with it. The relationship, I don't think the way they handle it is very Catholic, mm. is, is the problem with it, because it ends up saying in the end that reason doesn't really matter. There's just experiences. We can have experiences out there that have nothing to do with the natural world. I didn't know if... Even in the Protestant world, are there ways that they try to handle reason and faith and that aren't quite Catholic? I don't think Joe can talk to the Yeah. Okay, so. But, like, Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard is a, a, a Dutch philosopher. Again, um, this term, leap of faith. And you often hear of that. That. Um, Faith is is something irrational, but I, I leap out into the, the deep anyhow. Um, that's totally contrary to the Catholic understanding of uh, of your faith. That um, faith is a rational decision, uh, an act of the intellect and will. Uh, so it's not simply an act of your will, but also of your intellect. Uh, so uh, yeah, the, many Protestants need uh, to come a little further in along in their understanding of how reason should work with, with faith. Yes? Is uh, liberation theology part of the dehumanization? Is it uh, how it's said to be begun in the Latin churches, but it doesn't seem Catholic or it seems more materialistic rather than philosophic? Yeah. Um, I would say that uh, you know there might be some connection there. I mean, they, what what liberation theology does is waters down uh, Christianity to simply a, a social uh, phenomenon, and the faith is much more than than that. Uh, obviously, uh, you do works of charity to help the poor, uh, to aid the needy, but. Uh, Christianity uh, is, is much more than that. It's it's uh, uh, it, it it's uh, a relationship with with God with Christ. And so, if, in liberation theology, they were uh, uh, not communicating that message, that essential message of Christianity, that uh, one of, of liberation from sin, uh, liberation from your. Uh, inadequacies and salvation in Christ. They were preaching a, a, a Marxist theory of salvation here on earth of creating better material conditions. So somewhat related, but it's, a, it's not as related to this discussion. 
have a question. The book of science written first, or the book of religion written first? <laughs> well, which came first? Well, obviously, if you look at the religion, if you look at the three thousand years, yeah, if you look at this three-part. Uh, there are three forms of revelation. The first is revelation in creation. So obviously, the world was created prior to any scriptures. So, uh, and that's that's perhaps many people's first encounter with the divine is through the created world before they uh, are exposed to the faith or before they read anything. And so, <clears throat> I would say um, the book of nature. Um, is sort of a prerequisite to uh, the book of, of Scripture. Not to, not to say, but um, so it's prior in 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 time, temporally, but in priority, um, the book of Scripture takes precedence over the book of nature. Yes. Say that again. Both ways. Equating nature with science because the question was which came first, religion or science. Well, uh, I, I in my in my lecture I referred to the book of nature and the book of scripture. I thought that's what he was uh, referring to. But uh, when you say the book of religion, the book of science, what do you mean exactly by that? For example, like you know uh, the scriptures. Even the earliest scriptures date back to how many thousand years? Four thousand years. Mm -hmm. Okay, but dinos, dinosaurs exist for more than that, longer than that. And even the Chinese culture has a much longer history. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, so human being, obviously, they they they, they have you know writing the book of of science and the book of the religion. Oh, which one comes first? Well, I mean, there are there are scientific writings that predate uh, the, the the Bible, if that's what you mean. Yeah. Yes. I, I think that the religions are kind of revelations. That's ontological revelation. That is um, in the end times um, when we will be. You know, as St. Paul says, now we see um, as through glass darkly, but in heaven we will see uh, directly. And so what this is saying is that um, now, uh, in this present life, God has revealed himself to us, but it, it's it's still, in, a, in what I was saying, obscurely. But in the end times, in, in the last judgment, um, when we're in heaven, uh, the fullness of God's uh, revelation will be revealed. Yes. Yeah, I, I think you're selling the leap of faith a bit short. I mean, both Descartes and Pascal, or although Pascal is called a heretic, or Catholic philosophers, talked about the at times you need to separate the uh, the heart. From, from reason itself, and that there are times that even when you when you apply reason to faith, that leap of faith is necessary. So I think, to me, you're dismissing Kierkegaard a bit too lightly. Well, after his uh, yeah, I, I did. Um, true. I, I didn't want to get into the intricacies of Kierkegaard's philosophy, but um, the central point that I was making was that the misunderstanding. You often hear that term, leap of faith, in, in common parlance. 
that's the only thing that's going to go. Can, can you put um, sort of philosophy in its place here? Because usually when people talk about science and religion, the missing link is always philosophy because science really just measures things. That's its access to truth. It measures things. Yeah. There's a whole body called philosophy, which has been around forever, which is sort of in the middle and sort of underpins a lot of what we're talking about. But we don't talk about it, and I think things fall through the cracks. So can you... Yeah, so if we just go back to Ciencia, um, as I was saying, in a generic sense, science is simply a body of knowledge and it's, and it's practice. So philosophy is a science. Um, theater is a science. Um, but today, when people talk yeah, about science, so, we're talking about so measuring. In the Greek world, you had philosophy, and other philosophy, you had natural philosophy, which now has devolved into what we call science in, in the more specific sense. And so when you speak of uh, faith and reason, you can, you can um, typically, uh, like in, in, in the Pope, John Paul II's Fetus of Ratio, he uses philosophy and reason sort of interchangeably sometimes. Um, and you can... Um, so in a generic sense, you sort of can group philosophy with science um, in, in terms of uh, using your reason apart from faith. Um, am I answering? No, I, th I think science today is really a much narrower discipline. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> the problem is, I think... It depends on the science, because there's, there's all different kinds of sciences. There's nuclear science, there's, there's quantum physics. Yes. There's, there's no problem measuring in quantum physics, but it's a science. So, you know, there's a lot of theory, there's a lot of philosophy, there's a lot of everything in science. It, can't, it isn't just measuring things. You're being too cut and dry there, too black and white. That the point is there are different ways to access reality. Yes. There's measurements, there's extrapolations and theories associated with imagination. And we need to sort of separate them when we discuss it. So, yeah, in, in common parlance again, um, we speak of science as being that body of knowledge that we use the scientific method, empirical experimentation to obtain knowledge. Philosophy is typically some esoteric, you know, that it, but it, it addresses the more of the ultimate questions. You know, looking at metaphysics and and uh, looking at the, the the larger questions and trying to approach those questions through reason unaided by revelation.